welcome to the Agave Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Rivas Nordestein. I'm a mezcal-loving mujer serving a side of cultura, history, and of course, research. Grab a copita and listen in. Welcome to the Agave Academic Podcast. This is episode one, the first episode ever of this series, and I'm so excited that you're here. I want to talk about my background as an academic and as a journalist and really just as a human being who found out that they love agave-based spirits and not just the flavor and taste of them, but the industry, the diversity, the biodiversity, and really the people that are involved in making it. So I appreciate you being here, and I'm sure that many of you that are listening to this know me personally, and if not, you might have found me on Instagram. I hope you'll stick around for a few episodes, not only to get to know me, but also to learn a thing or two about agave-based spirits. I'll start by saying I love stories, and I really experience and see the world through stories, and agave-based spirits have an incredible and insanely interesting story. Stories are how I make sense of the world around me, and that's really how I found my background in communications. I found my career in health narrative, which is an academic way to describe healthcare storytelling and using stories as a way to educate and motivate people to make healthcare choices. And I'm starting to see some parallels with exactly what I could potentially see this becoming. But um, my undergraduate degree is from Arizona State's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. I studied journalism and mass communication. And during that time, I was taking a class that was focused on online media. And this was a while back. So, I mean, think like early, early days of Twitter before all of the chaos that's going on right now. But I was studying journalism and decided that I wanted to create a health blog focused on addressing areas of health inequity and healthcare inequality for Latinas. I did a lot of freelance writing and I wrote for Latina Magazine, Cosmo for Latinas. I had partnerships with the CDC, the American Heart Association. I did a lot of work in HIV and AIDS and more. And health has always really been my favorite topic. So I moved back to Chicago from Arizona and I did my first master's degree in health communication, really studying health narrative and examining the bias in media when reporting on health conditions impacting people of color. It's a really big topic. It's kind of a mouthful, but I really loved the work that I was doing. And I went on to teach as an adjunct professor while I was working full-time in healthcare communications, different agencies, startups, and now I'm in-house at a biotech company. And healthcare has always been my bread and butter, my pan and mantequilla. And I realized I wanted to expand my skill set a couple years ago and find more about the business side of health equity. And this, of course, was during the pandemic. I'm locked at home. I want to do something productive. I want to examine something that I recognize being a trend, but has also been the work that I've been doing for a little over a decade. So I decided to take on completing an MBA. I can talk all about that experience, but I don't know if that's the most interesting. But I really wanted to focus on a passion of mine that I haven't explored from an academic standpoint and really from any other standpoint other than just pure enjoyment. I think for everybody in life, there's a tendency once you're in your career and you've been established for a while to recognize that your job and the thing that you do to make money shouldn't be the only thing that's bringing you fulfillment and joy and that you spend your time on. I think we're all multifaceted human beings with really diverse areas of interest. And it makes me sad to think that 
everybody isn't fostering that part of themselves, you know, fostering something that maybe isn't going to be the most financially productive, but is going to make you happy and is going to introduce you to different types of people. And, you know, for me, different types of flavors and different types of agave-based spirits that are delicious in cocktails or fun to travel to or a cool thing to learn about. So I have been super interested for years in agave-based spirits and really wanted to explore that part of myself and also within the spirits industry. The spirit industry here in Chicago has a huge history, and the more I've started learning about agave-based spirits, the more I've started learning about prohibition in the U.S. And um, whether you drink alcohol or not, they're, from a societal standpoint, like the spirit industry is ever-present. You're constantly getting bombarded with different types of media, whether it's on social media, you're seeing the content, you see it when you're reading the news, when you're watching the news. I still do that. I don't know if everybody does, but you get served this kind of content everywhere. At sports games, um, if you're waiting for the train, you see different types of ads. I mean, it's pretty incredible to see how much um, is invested into the spirits industry and marketing the spirits industry. And I think that's what makes agave-based spirits so interesting is, yes, there's a major market, but I feel like there's this kind of hidden, untapped market that... Um, you kind of need to know the right people to get into tasting some of the really unique things. So I really wanted to be able to explore more of this. So picture me in my tiny two-bedroom apartment in Chicago during the pandemic, reading a bunch of case studies about large companies focused on crop and food production. And I'm starting to make more connections about sustainability issues of today. I think about the different monocrops that are kind of taking over. I think about the bananas that we buy in the store that are this one type of banana and the the massive risks that come from having that single type of plant and how quickly that type of crop can be taken away based on different factors, whether it's disease, it's um, water usage, it's climate change, it's all of these different things can impact the types of foods and products that we consume. So this got me really thinking about everything. I love food. I love cooking. And I also really love agave-based spirits. It worked out perfectly because I went to Loyola University in Chicago and participated in their Baumhart Scholars Program, which isn't just an MBA, but a social impact MBA. Digging into sustainability issues, dissecting capitalism, and searching for the intersection of profit and purpose was at the core of the program. I was in a CSR course, and I was reading a case study that was focused on the cacao industry. And this is, I think, one of those areas that you can really go down a rabbit hole when you start looking at what this means. Um, I think there's a lot of name brand chocolates that we're familiar with that don't ethically source cacao and don't do it in a way that's supporting the environment. They don't do it in a way that's supporting the people um, that are actually producing it and harvesting it. But then also you think about what's actually being added to the chocolates too. So more and more, there's this trend that's kind of coming up and I'm starting to think about where does my food come from? Um, what's going to happen if, you know, climate change is kind of taking over the crops like it would? What 
are those bananas that are at the grocery store going to become obsolete? Like, these are all questions that I'm having. And again, it's COVID. I'm stuck at home. These are the thoughts that I'm having, and it could be way worse. But one of the articles that I had come across that really hit home for me was on the drought impacting the Southwest and how breweries in Colorado, you know, so many of them popped up, um, are suffering from a lack of water. And the Colorado River is obviously such a huge water source for the majority of the Southwest. So to make spirits like beer and then also whiskey and vodka, you need wheat, barley and corn. And I mean, some other stuff, depending on what you're looking at and which brand it is. But each of those products uses an immense amount of water to grow. And it's not just a crop concern, but the Colorado River and water rights for the surrounding states was a huge issue at the time. California, Nevada, and Arizona came to an agreement to use less water through 2026, but there was a significant amount of time where this was being debated and discussed and really got me thinking about the future of the spirits industry as a whole. What is a plant that uh, doesn't require a lot of water to grow and is native and an indigenous plant, depending on how it's harvested and um, it's biodiverse and my wheels are turning. So admittedly, my husband's an avid whiskey drinker. We've got a ton of bottles, probably more than I care to admit, um, in our cabinet. And I am recognizing that the cost of these have gone up significantly for brands that used to be household staples. And as we know, I don't want to say too many of the business tropes, but um, it got me thinking about this. The fact that you buy low and you sell high, which brings me to mezcal. There's a saying that you don't find mezcal and mezcal finds you. And this is exactly how it happened. I live in Chicago and Mexican-American. I think those are two facts that are really critical to understanding my framework and identity, and then also my perspectives on the broader world. As a Chicagoan, speakeasies, alcohol, prohibition, like I mentioned, are just kind of part of our fabric and our history. And you're also, unfortunately, going to have to suffer through hearing my Chicago accent. My family's been in Chicago for generations. I live just a few blocks away from where my dad grew up in that multi-generational brick apartment building that was entirely full of family. All of our family kind of grew up together, cousins, aunts, uncles, everybody coming in and out of everybody else's houses. And all of my life, my family would celebrate and mourn and enjoy each other's company with a shot of tequila and just kind of drinking. You know, it's typical Mexican behavior. The more experienced I've gotten with drinking, the more I've learned I really love a good tequila and love even more a good mezcal. And when I say good, I mean delicious, doesn't have to mean expensive, but I mean like ethically sourced, good for the people who make it, good for the people who drink it, and even better for the people who are serving it to you. My story with mezcal starts with having an incredibly long week and you know when your person asks you if you want to go out tonight and there is no there is no hesitation. You are like 100%. I'm going out. We're going to do this. Let's find something interesting. Let's go somewhere fun. I've had a long week. That is my love language. It's the breaking up of like the mundane, the boring, the frustration. Like I am always, always going to say yes to that. So my husband asked if I want to go out. Yes, 100%. Let's go. And we always talk about the warm orange glow 
of streetlights on a perfect night in Chicago, which if you've been here, if you live here, you hopefully know what I'm talking about. It's not the LED light. It's the old light, the old Chicago that makes you remember why you live in the city. It's the one that puts the city in such a beautiful light. It allows you to recognize that there's millions of other people that are also living in the same space that are literally framed in the same lighting that you are and that it's beautiful. It's a glimmer moment. It's giving you appreciation and just simply existing in a place that hits the lighting in a perfect way. And also, Chicago is one of the best food and beverage places, I would argue, in the world. Again, Chicago pride. But you take a five-minute drive and you're a stone's throw away from some of the best restaurants in the world. A few years ago, I went out on a Friday night for dinner with my now husband. We didn't have a reservation. There was a bar underneath the Mexican restaurant we were going to, and I got there first. So I decided to have a cocktail, just wait for him. I'm chatting up the bartender. I'm trying different types of spirits that I've never seen before. I'm always going to order a tequila Paloma. Like that is my absolute favorite drink. And the bartender was like, well, what about this Sotol drink? Try this, you know, hands me like a little copita and has me take a sip. And then is also like, let's try mezcal in your Paloma. And I immediately was in love. I don't remember what kind of mezcal it was. And I wish that I did. But um, if you're based in Chicago and you're listening to this, you might remember a spot called Todos Santos, which was the bar underneath Quixote. And I'm still devastated that it closed. It was the beginning of my love affair with mezcal. And I think Chicago is missing something like that. It's missing what exists in Mexico City, Oaxaca, and other parts of Mexico. I found bars like this in Spain. I found them in New Zealand. I think the world absolutely needs more mezcalerias and tequilerias. So in Chicago, we have a few spots that I think are really great and have an awesome selection. They do fun events. They bring in different brands periodically and allow you to really interact with the families that are making the mezcal or agave-based spirit. Um, but I want more. I want so much more. I want different options. I want them in different neighborhoods. I always want to be drinking something new and something different and something surprising and something that maybe I'm not going to like, but the person next to me might love. And I feel like that's what you get with an agave-based spirit. If I go to a bar, there's a 99% chance I'm ordering a cocktail, of course, um, but it's going to be an agave-based spirit. And I'm typically met with an ooh or I can't do tequila because of, you know, whatever reason. And I feel like it's always a cheap tri trip to Mexico and it was on spring break and maybe you weren't even a drinking age in the U.S., but it's always some sort of all-inclusive experience that doesn't actually get you to the heart of what agave-based spirits are. When it comes to memories, like you're always going to remember that terrible drink that you had. I can't really drink rum for that reason, but it's the scent and the flavor of your past mistakes that definitely comes up. And I think there's something more to be explored than just, you know, shutting out an entire category. I should probably try rum again. I do periodically, but it's just not my favorite thing and that's okay. But I want more people to explore agave-based spirits, this podcast will lean into that. It's going to be a journey back into history to explore a part of Mexican culture and beyond that's historically misrepresented and really just not told. 
Tequila isn't meant to be served as a shot that you down and you don't taste. Mezcal isn't meant to have a worm at the bottom and you only drink it during the losing bed. And I think there's so much more to the story of agave-based spirits than meets the consumer eye. So we're going to be looking at tequila, mezcal, rexia, and all agave-based spirits. I recently took my first trip to Oaxaca and was able to explore palenques, was able to explore agave fields and see and meet the people that are producing some of the things that I love so deeply. And it was so moving to be able to participate in something so close to my heart, but also to see what it could look like if those were the people that we were supporting, if those were the families that were actually receiving the dollars that we were putting into, you know, each of the drinks that we're buying or each of the bottles that we see at the store. I had a conversation with somebody in the past. I was doing some research on a group project um, for my capstone and we were talking about the price of agave-based spirits and what it means when you find a bottle that's cheap and what that means for the communities that help produce it, what it means for the people that helped harvest it, what it means for the sustainability of those plants and the biodiversity of the environment. I mean, the pollinators, like there's the list goes on and on about what that means for each of those communities. And you look at some of the other brands that are maybe charging a little bit more, but have much more transparency into where it's produced, how it's produced, who's benefiting from it, who's the mezcalero, like who's the person who's behind the actual beverage and the story and the history of a palenque. And that I think is something that we really should know and should be a part of how we're going to then go about our purchasing habits, how we're going to go about ordering a drink at the bar. Is it only going to be drinking Espadine or are we going to be looking for more biodiversity in the types of agaves that we're selecting? And <laughs> I'll get more into this later, but I feel like the more that I've learned about different types of agaves, now I can say exactly which ones I'm going to love and which ones I'm willing to pay more for and what can be done to prevent what happened to tequila to then happening to some of the other agave-based spirits. Fun fact, all tequila is produced in five states in Mexico in order to be called tequila. Um, it's a certification through Mexico. It requires you know, that label to then be imported into the US as tequila. Um, but it all comes from one type of agave, the Blue Weber agave. And this plant is something that can be easily cultivated it is quick to grow, so it only takes a few years, and it's a crop that can pretty much continuously be harvested for some of these brands. And when I say it's been cultivated, I mean driving through Mexico, if you've ever seen an agave field for tequila, it's a sea of agaves. Like, it is so many agaves. And the producers that you see are also, if you've ever been to Napa and experienced wine tasting and wine country, it's that same thing. You have those major, massive distilleries, and then you see all of this agave, and you just kind of have to like tilt your head and think about the fact that this was once a very biodiverse place. Mexico has some of the greatest biodiversity on the planet, and it's being, you know, sanitized to then incorporate what can be easily produced into one type of beverage. 
this is where I think the challenge comes in to how we want to protect the future of agave and the future of agave-based spirits. I don't want it to be where we see exactly what happened to tequila happening to mezcal, resia, and other types of agave-based spirits. It's really easy to look at how to maximize profits and how to maximize farming and how to maximize the output without really examining what it takes to do that and what it does to the landscape, what it does to the environment, and what it does to the communities that are embracing biodiversity. Agave have a very sacred past in Mexico. Agave, when it flowers, is a sign that it's going to die. And that's when it's producing all of those seeds, thousands of seeds, to then grow the rest of the plants. I mean, I I think there's something so poignant and beautiful about the fact that like the plant becomes the most beautiful when it's about to die. So I'm not going to make any metaphors about what that means for us as people and whatever else. But when we think about like the ancestral heritage of agave and the sacred past of agave and what it meant to indigenous Mexican communities to have this plant and to learn how to distill this. I really want to dig more into that because agave, I think, need to be protected. They need to have this reverence that we don't necessarily take with other types of products. But there's a big opportunity here. During this season, we'll be celebrating the ancestral heritage of agave-based products. So we'll be exploring the history of agave-based spirits, what kinds of agave there are, how long they're grown for, um, and I'll also share which ones are my favorite because at this point you're able to taste some of the flavors within the different types of agaves. And depending on how it's produced, it's going to, you know, shape that completely. But you'll start to know what you like. You know, when it comes to wine with grapes, there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of differences to the types of terroir that it can grow in, the types of flavors you're going to be able to pull out Um there's an agave spirits tasting wheel that I think is one of my favorite things because it's so bizarre, like the types of flavors that you can get. You can open up a bottle and that smells just like a jalapeno, but that's exactly what can happen with agave. And there's so much that I think you can do with that, um, especially when it comes to making cocktails or just you know, tasting them straight. We'll be exploring the history of agave-based spirits, the difference between the categories of agaves the differences in the types of spirits, how it's made, where it's from, who's behind the brands that you know well from the shelves, you know, that you would see from the grocery stores, and then also the brands that you likely haven't heard of. The cultural significance of agave-based spirits, the environmental footprint of your favorite drinks, and most importantly, the people that are making spirits that are truly magical. Celebrity brands and big box brands definitely serve their purpose. I mean, that's what you can find in all your grocery stores. Um, but what about the family-run palenques? What about all the female-owned distilleries? Who's telling those stories? More than anything with this podcast, I hope that it inspires you to try something different, to be a different type of consumer who's spending your dollars based on the people it's supporting. Like any good academic project, we have to start with a thesis statement. 
I believe that agave-based spirits are the key to a more sustainable and admittedly enjoyable future and worth exploring at a deeper level to uncover the history, culture, biodiversity, and stories from mescaleros y mescaleras. Consider this podcast a love letter to my favorite spirit. In upcoming episodes, we'll be featuring guests who are much smarter than I am to share their work to bring agave-based spirits to the forefront, along with some fun drinking stories, amazing flavors, and hopefully inspiration to book that plane ticket to see what we're really talking about. With that, I hope you stick around and join me next time on Agave Academic. Salud! Thank you.